Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Well, good evening, church. Uh, my name is Stephen. I serve as one of the pastors here at The Point Church, and uh, I'm so excited to open God's Word with you today, God's Word uh, that we call the Bible. Um, and uh, every time that we do this, this is really cool. Some people call it a sermon. Some people call it a message, but we're just going to call it talking about Jesus because that's really what it is. Uh, uh, every time that we do this, we really want to, um, to do two things. We want to, uh, to see and hear and know Jesus more. And then we want to feel seen and heard and known by him. And I think it's, uh, it's really easy uh, to do that as we explore the life of Jesus. So, you know, titles matter to many people. Whether it's an academic working to get all of those letters behind their name, you know, like PhD, MED, all of those things. Um, maybe it's a worker in a, a large corporation that's trying to get one of those three-letter jobs, the, the CFO, CEO, COO, you know, whatever. Uh, or, or maybe it's just like this, you know, you, maybe you're just a, a, a woman who has uh, been waiting for their boyfriend to ask them to marry them so they can get that MRS title. Um, you know, that maybe that was just, uh, you know, the, the title that you want most, but, but titles matter. And uh, in, in times gone by, when you arrived at a gathering, you were announced with all of your titles. So people knew that you were important. In slightly older times, when you weren't, you know, when there weren't quite as many titles that one could hold, like, you know, in the British monarchy, there's like a million different titles that you can hold now, but uh, people were given titles based on their accomplishments, on their temperaments or their characteristics. Sometimes it was as simple as the great, you know, one of those examples is Alexander the Great, the, the king and conqueror. Um, um, though it could be maybe more simple than that, uh, it, it, you know, maybe something like uh, a characteristic that they had, uh, someone like Eric the Red, he was a Norse explorer and king who got the name simply because he had red hair. Um, then there's some, there comes some more strange, albeit like well-earned names, um, names like uh, like Halfton, the bad entertainer. Uh, this king apparently he paid his soldiers really well, but he didn't offer them any entertainment. So he he got this moniker of uh, Halfton, the bad entertainer. Um, ironically, he was the son of a guy named Eystein the Fart. Uh, yeah, you heard me right on that one. Um, let me just say it was, had nothing to do with his flatulence. Anyway, uh, one of my favorites was King Louis of France in the late 17, early 1800s, uh, when France was kind of going back and forth between being a monarchy and having an emperor, that emperor being Napoleon. Uh, Louis, King Louis, was eventually given the moniker Louis the Unavoidable. 
given that each time that they went back to having a monarch, it was unavoidable that he was going to be the choice. Like He wasn't really what the people wanted, but, you know, he was going to be the king. So he got that title of unavoidable. Titles have always been important. And in today's passage in the biography of Jesus' life that we call the book of John, we, we see Jesus affixed with more titles that have deep, significant meaning. In the first chapter of John, we see Jesus called seven different titles. He's called the Word of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. But there's no more important title given to Jesus in this chapter than the one that we find in verse 29. So if you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it. We're reading the book of John. John's in the New Testament of your Bible. You can flip about three-fourths of the way through. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. We've got the words on the screen. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we would love to get you one. Just come talk to me after. I would love to give you one. You also, there's this, this phone thing that you can open up called an app um, that you can have every translation and every version of the Bible that you would like. Um, but we're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist, not John the author. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. The image of the Lamb is central to the gospel. Now the gospel is the good news of Jesus. And if I were to sum up all of the gospel in one sentence, I probably couldn't do a better job than verse 29 says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a powerful phrase that tells us so much about who Jesus is and why he came. But what does it really even mean? Like what does Lamb of God mean? It's an extremely popular phrase across Christian literature, songs, and it's even in our vernacular. But did you know that the Lamb of God is only mentioned in two places in the Bible? And both of those places were written by the same guy who authors this book, a guy named John. It's weird, huh? This has led some scholars to argue that maybe John, the author, kind of made up this phrase. However, there's a lot of evidence that seems to... to carry weight, that this theme is carried throughout many key points in the biblical narrative. And we'll kind of briefly hit those, um, but know that if you stick with us, we're going to be hitting these important passages in, a great, uh, in greater depth later on. So these are just kind of flybys. Um, but I, I want to take the time to kind of connect these stories with the phrase, Lamb of God, for a few reasons. First, because I I think it's important for us to understand the threads and themes that bind all of Scripture together. 
Second, because by helping you see and understand these themes, I hope to empower you to start seeing those for yourself in your own like daily reading and study of the Bible. Finally, I, I, I think that understanding the weight and depth of this statement really informs the rest of our time here together, our study of John, and really our whole foundation for faith. So let's briefly look at three examples of the Lamb of God being discussed in the story of the Bible. The first that we'll look at is found in the first book of the Bible, a book that we call Genesis, and it's in, found in chapter 22. We, say, uh, we see a man named Abraham who has been chosen by God to be the father of, uh, of the nation through which God would save the whole world from sin and death. We call that nation Israel. After almost 100 years, Abraham was able to have his first son with his wife, Sarah. Then God asked something shocking from Abraham. Sacrifice your son to me. Now, I say it's shocking, but this was actually a perfectly normal thing that the gods in ancient Palestine and in the ancient world would have asked for. Baal and, and other Babylonian and, and um, Mesopotamian gods asked for child sacrifice all the time. Child sacrifice was just a run-of-the-mill request. So Abraham answers, okay. After traveling three days, Abraham's son Isaac asks where the lamb is for the sacrifice, and Abraham replies with a, a noncommittal, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Then they climb to the top of a mountain, and Abraham ties Isaac down and begins to sacrifice his son only for, the, for an angel of the Lord, uh, or the angel of the Lord, actually, is, is what the text says here, which is, was most likely Jesus before he was born as a man. And that, that, uh, that angel says, do not lay a hand on Isaac. And then a ram appears in the thicket to be sacrificed as a substitute for Isaac. The second kind of time that we see this lamb uh, and this lamb of God maybe idea entering in is, um, is when Abraham's descendants, the, the nation of Israel, um, they've endured 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And a man named Moses was tasked with telling the Egyptian pharaoh or, or the Egyptian king to let God's people go. After a series of plagues, God sends his final judgment to Egypt for their refusal to release his people. This plague is the sending of the angel of death to every house in the land, killing their firstborn. However, God instructed Moses to tell the people of Israel to find a lamb without spot or blemish, to sacrifice it, and then to place the blood over their doorframe. And when the angel of death would come, he would pass over their houses because it was marked with the lamb's blood. But the third place that we're going to talk about is in the writings of a man named Isaiah who was God's anointed prophet, or, or another word for that is mouthpiece. He was given prophecies of the coming Messiah, or this, this Savior who would come into the world. And in, in chapter 53 of his writings, he wrote this about the coming Messiah. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as the sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I think those are three strong times in Scripture that show us three times where a lamb or a sheep was used as a substitute. It was, it was used as a protectant. It was, uh, it was called to, to go silently. I think that this, these passages prove beyond doubt that there truly is a theme of this Lamb of God idea. And, that, and so I, I know that there's been a lot of background here, but there's, there's meaning to it. I want you to remember that in the first century Palestine, there weren't many job options. So education was kind of fairly limited to a few things. So if you were being educated, you were not going to be educated to be an engineer or a chemist. You were, you were going to do a couple different things. So, so Jewish boys would learn in school uh, really the Torah, the law, what we call the Old Testament. They would, they would know the stories that I just recounted in, in painstaking detail. So when John the Baptist uses the title Lamb of God for Jesus, he knew what he was doing. John the Baptist was the son of a priest. So John also had the weight of being a prophet or God's mouthpiece. So this very well could have been God giving him words to announce God's son. But the moment that people heard this moniker, I think they would know what John was saying. With this simple phrase, Jesus is being proclaimed as the foretold Messiah, the one who would be a substitutionary sacrifice for us, and that through his blood, as he was found without spot or without blemish, death would not find a hold on those covered by it. This phrase is not trivial. This phrase is central. It's so weighty. It's so important. That's why my first point is that the image of the lamb is central to the gospel. This announcement actually does exactly what John the Baptist intended. It attracts people to follow Jesus. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 35. It says, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They told him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Jesus invites us to come and see. What a powerful invitation this is. Come and see. Instead of, of just telling them where he was staying, he invites them in. He invites them to dine with him and he invites them into his circle. This invitation was so much more than just an invitation to come to the house. It was an invitation to come and to see what he was all about. This invite is weighty. His question to them, what are you looking for, is one that Jesus already knew the answer. Jesus doesn't ask questions he doesn't know the answers to. Jesus knows that they are looking to follow the Messiah. 
And here, by calling him rabbi, they're elevating Jesus to this high level. They're, they're saying that he is teacher and they are disciple. And they're asking to follow him. Jesus knows that they are about to have a front row seat to history's defining story. He invites them, come and see. This offer is infectious. As soon as Andrew has come and seen what Jesus was all about, he knew exactly what he must do. After experiencing Jesus, Andrew has to go and tell others. In verse 40, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. The first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, which is also translated, just aside, as stone or rock. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so do the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathaniel asked? Come and see. So I, I want just to take a moment real quick and, and explain something that's kind of strange here. So, so this phrase, can anything good come out of Nazareth, um, it's maybe familiar to, 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 to you and, and if you've you know, been around church at all, but, but really what's, what's interesting, what I love about, about this is that, uh, see, Nathaniel, uh, is, we know he's from a place called Cana. And Cana and Nazareth kind of have this uh, in-town rivalry uh, type of thing. Like they are two rival towns. It's kind of like, I don't know, the, the greatest rivalry uh, in all of sports, Ann Arbor and Columbus. Um, like if I were to know, that's right, go blue. Uh, yes, 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 Michigan uh, crushing Ohio State the last two years has been fantastic. So if someone, if I were to meet someone and they were to tell me uh, that they were from uh, Columbus or if someone were to tell me about someone great coming out of Columbus, I would probably say, as a Michigan fan, someone that's in rivalry with Columbus as a whole, I would say, can anything good come out of Columbus? So it's interesting here, like, I love that John kind of puts these personal touches in. He shows us that these are real men. But I love Philip's answer. Instead of, you know, making fun of Nathaniel or pushing back Nathaniel, he just says, come and see. So if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. We should invite others to come and see. See, for Andrew and Philip, it was clear. The Lamb of God had come to take away the sin of the world. And this was a message that was worth telling. This was a man, Jesus, who was worth following. They experienced something that they could not keep to themselves, and they didn't even know what was gonna happen. They didn't know what was coming. They hadn't seen miracles. They hadn't witnessed Jesus laying his life down on the cross. They hadn't witnessed his resurrection from the tomb. 
They knew nothing other than what they felt in their souls, but they knew that nothing would ever be the same again. Friends, if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we have experienced this invitation to come and see, we have read the miracles. We have seen the cross. We have read about the resurrection. We have felt the Holy Spirit come and minister to our souls as he dwells within us. But how often are we inviting others to come and see? How often are we so overwhelmed with what we have been invited to that we cannot help but try to bring others along? Just as John the Baptist cried into the wilderness, we often feel here in the Pacific Northwest like that we are in a, a spiritual wilderness. And it's really easy to be deterred by the apathy around us or even by the antagonism of those around us. But friends, I, I promise, the invitation to come and see Jesus is, the wor is worth the risk. It's worth the re rejection. It's worth a shot. When our family and friends and loved ones and, and even the guy who sits across the cubicle from us answer to call, the call to come and see, and, and, and they will, they will not be disappointed. And they will never be the same. But friends, an invitation isn't just enough. In a world full of demands for our time, in a world, world full of, of invitations, we, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve those around us and use sacrificial service as a come and see moment. Lost and broken people see how we love and serve foster kids in our community here at the point. And when they see that, they will see Jesus. As we invite people into our homes, into our lives, and into our church, we invite them to come and see how we love each other, and they will come and see Jesus. When we make lost and broken people feel seen and heard and known, they will see and hear and know Jesus. Friends, God is making his appeal to them through us. We have to invite people to come. And to see. Today's passage ends with some beautiful imagery that Jesus reveals to Nathaniel. Verse 47 says, Then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus answered, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, this is kind of a, a strange answer to the question. Daniel says, how do, you, how do you know me? And Jesus says that you are under a fig tree. Now, now, that could have been a, you know, in Nathaniel's mind, it could have been a guess, right? Um, 
but something about Jesus' response really just hits Nathaniel and, 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 and it, it, it proves to him. Because he goes from, from just addressing Jesus to then calling him rabbi. And then he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, we don't really know why, uh, but we can kind of uh, begin to imagine maybe Philip was contemplating the Bible, the Torah that he knew. Maybe he was praying for the Messiah. Maybe he was thinking about this story that Jesus references at the end. See, in Genesis 28, it tells a story of a man named Jacob who would be named Israel, and that's where we actually get the, the nation of Israel's name from. So he was deceitful, and he was not exactly who you would choose to be the forefather of your country if you could choose, but, but God uh, after, has an encounter with Jacob, and Jacob has visions of angels ascending and descending from heaven, and he declares God to be the true God. He says this in, in uh Genesis 28, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so verse 51 of our passage is referring to this story. And Nathaniel, an upright man who would know this, immediately starts to think of this story when Jesus says it. It's so interesting because Jesus says here to Nathanael, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. There, there was a, an older, uh, uh, a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago or so, a translation of the Bible that actually uh, uh, translates this sentence as here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. See, Jacob was not a great dude. And so there's a juxtaposition here of Nathaniel and Jacob. And something about this, this juxtaposition, there's something about Jesus knowing Nathaniel deeply, and there's something about Jesus referring to this story that just ignites Nathaniel's soul. And he knows the story. As soon as Jesus says, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending to the Son of Man. Jesus is saying something really, really important here. And Nathaniel's response is to follow. Because here Jesus is saying that Jesus is the ladder between heaven and earth. If you're taking notes, I would love for you to write that down. This is my last point, that Jesus is the ladder between heaven and earth. Here, Jesus is announcing that he is the ladder that will bring heaven to earth and bring earth to heaven. And this is a huge claim, but it's one that we continue to be see, be, be, we see being made true today. The final statement in the opening chapter of John is such a come and see moment. The world that is to come is described as a place with no more crying and no more pain. A place where, we will, where there will be no death and where we will see Jesus face to face and we will know the glory of God fully. And this is what Jesus is offering here. This is what Jesus truly offers all of us to come and see heaven coming to earth. Jesus being the ladder. But what we cannot lose in all of this is the initial call that John the Baptist started with. A call to repent. 
and to be baptized. Now, baptism is it's such an interesting direction for God to have given John. See, at this point in history, baptism was only used by outsiders when they converted to Judaism. And the converts would actually baptize themselves. So what John is doing, this whole convention of John calling Jews, who are insiders, to be cleansed by baptism and, and to be cleansed with baptism by someone else, it was so foreign to them. It's probably why the religious, religious elite in our, uh, our previous passage, why they come and talk to John. They come to him and they're interested in what he is doing because he's doing something that is so crazy and wild. Inviting insiders to be cleansed by someone else. It's John preparing the way for Jesus. And even though all of this is new, all of this is foreign, even though it was completely offensive to them, somehow a wild man out in the wilderness eating bugs and, and wild honey had a message that their soul desperately needed, and so they responded. But John knew that there was one coming who would invite them into the same idea, being cleansed and baptized by someone else because they couldn't baptize themselves. But John knew that the, the, the forgiveness that was being offered, the cleansing that was being offered by Jesus would be such a greater thing. The invitation of Jesus is incredibly offensive in today's society. It's an invitation to admit that you are sinful, that you're an enemy of God, that we're weak and helpless with no ability to save ourselves. We have to depend on the work of someone else to rescue us, and, and we cannot work our way into a better title. When we invite people into this, it will seem offensive. But friends, I promise when they come and see what it is like to follow Jesus, and even more, when they come and see who Jesus is, they will come and nothing will ever be the same again. And when they do, they will be given the greatest title we could ever imagine. The title of a forgiven child of the King of Kings. Friends, I invite you to come and to see Jesus. To come and see Jesus in the life of our church. To come and see Jesus in the way that we serve our community. To come and see Jesus in the way that we love each other. The invitation from the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and that Lamb is inviting us to come and see what he is all about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the invitation of coming and seeing. Lord, I pray that we would take that invitation. Lord, I pray that we would respond with our, our souls. Lord, that, uh, that you would truly be God to us, that you would be the lamb to us, that we would see your sacrifice, that we would see our sin, and we would see the grace and the mercy with which you took away sin and death from us, took our punishment upon yourself, silently gave your life for us. 
so that we could see heaven coming to earth. Lord, I pray that we would invite others to come and to see because it's worth it. Lord, you are worth seeing. Lord, I pray that here at the Point Church, we would build a church that is worth coming and seeing, not because of how great we are, but because how great our God is. Lord, we love you. And we miss you. And we can't wait until you come again and bring heaven to earth once and for all. But until you do, Lord, let us do our best to build your kingdom here, to bring heaven to earth as we, as you bring heaven to earth. In Jesus' name, amen.